Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Before we get started on today's episode, I just want to take a minute because this will be the 50th episode of Explore the Space. When we launched this in May of 2015, I had zero expectations of what was going to happen. I did not expect that in the span of a little over a year and a half, there would be 50 episodes, that the show would have been downloaded in every state across the United States, that it would have been downloaded in 75 countries around the world. I'm extraordinarily proud of what's happening here. I want to take a minute to thank everyone that's come on the show as a guest. I have been struck by the generosity of everyone that I've invited, even the people that haven't been able to come on the show. People are extraordinarily supportive of endeavors like this, and so it's very gratifying to be able to thank them. Everyone that I've invited to come on the show wants to come on to talk about what they're doing, and they've been very excited about it. And it makes me feel very proud to be able to showcase the amazing things that people are doing across this interface of healthcare and society. People that come on the show do it purely for the love of the game. I'm doing this purely for the love of the game. There's no money in this for anyone. None of us are getting paid for it. This is just an opportunity for us to talk and to learn from one another and to share interesting things that we're doing, writing, hearing, and learning. I'm equally grateful to anyone who's ever downloaded an episode of the show For everyone who's been here since the beginning, thank you so much for your loyalty. For those who have jumped in in the middle or are joining us today for the first time, absolutely delighted to have you. It is a real honor that anyone would take the time to download this show. We all have busy schedules. We all have a lot going on in our lives and that people would carve out some time to listen to explore the space, to listen to the guests that come on and hear what we have to say. It's a real privilege. It's an honor. It's something I take very, very seriously and I'm very grateful. I am definitely going to continue on with the show. I'm excited to see what the next 50 episodes are going to bring us. This is really becoming an amazing conduit into where people are, what people think about, how people are engaging with that interface between healthcare and society. We take some amazing left turns and right turns. We take some amazing detours. One of the most fun detours has been dipping into the world of ultramarathoning. And it connects with what we're trying to do here because it gets us out onto the sharp edge of the human experience. It gets us out there into places that most people don't ever go. And it connects because there are skills, ideas, mindsets that are essential to those who are dealing with a healthcare issue, who are dealing with a physical challenge, who are dealing with something that they need to overcome or an obstacle that they need to get through. It's the same mental pathways. It's the same focus and skills that connect all of these things together. And it's also extraordinarily fun to talk about. It's important to discuss this because that's what we're talking about in episode 50. Carl Meltzer is joining us today. Carl has the best Twitter handle of them all. It is at SpeedGoatCarl. Carl Meltzer is the world record holder for most 100-mile race wins. And in September of 2016, he set a world record for traversing running the length of the Appalachian Trail 2,190 miles in just short of 46 days. It was 45 days, 22 hours, 38 minutes, and that was a world record. That is the adventure of a lifetime. And again, emailed Carl, and he couldn't have been more gracious in coming on the show and talking about what he was able to do and to help us learn some of the lessons 
especially around what he calls the demon between the ears, how we overcome that challenge. This was such a fun conversation. Could not have thought of something more fitting for the 50th episode of Explore the Space. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. Can't wait to keep bringing out more content. Here is episode 50 with Carl Meltzer. Carl, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So it's uh, wonderful to be here on another podcast and uh, talk about the journey. This is an adventure that when I first read about it, it just blew my mind. The Appalachian Trail is one of those things that holds tremendous mystery, I think, for lots of Americans. I remember learning about it in you know geography class back when I was a kid growing up in California. But it's this long, kind of mystic, bizarre, lengthy thing. And you ran it. Yeah, uh, the Appalachian Trail, to me, was kind of the same thing. I, I grew up sort of near the trail. I lived in New Hampshire when I was a kid. And, you know, we kind of ventured out there once in a while. And we always thought it was really cool to just kind of get out in the woods. But you really, really never know the scale of it until you really start to dig into what, it, what it's really about. 2,190 miles. I mean, a trail all the way to Georgia. How can that exist, right? It's, it's a daunting thing. It's, uh, it's a wonderful trail for, for anybody to get out there, whether you're a fast, whether you ran it or, or walked or whatever. I mean, what I did on my journey, definitely, you know, I was going point A to point B, Mount Katahdin, just for spring a mountain as fast as possible. It really is a hike, you know. I mean, I, I hiked 90 to 95% of this thing. It wasn't like I ran it fast and then I got to sleep a long time. The whole idea was to just really just keep moving forward. And that's, that's kind of what this is all about. It's like going, you know, going as fast as you can, but you're really not running that much. I ran a little, but I mean, believe me, when the legs get tired, you're, you'd rather walk. <laughs> so it's an amazing thought, you know, so on this podcast, we, we pivot occasionally and we do need to dive into these issues around ultra marathoning and the mentality that goes into it, the thought process that goes into it. You're an experienced ultra marathoner. You've got 3,800 miler wins under your belt. Is it, is it that you say to yourself, I need a new challenge. I want something different. How do you even bring running the Appalachian trail onto your radar screen? Well, it's, it's funny that you say that. I, I, my brain is I'm wired in a weird way. Like, I always feel like I need to sort of raise the bar. When I started running ultra marathons, it was uh, 1996. I ran my first race, which was the 100-miler. I jumped right into the mix. <laughs> but I ran shorter <laughs> races before that, you know. Most of us um, on our first runs do like a 5K, just to set the context. Well, I did a few of those, but, <laughs> but I sort of, when I moved to Utah in 1989, I moved, there to be, moved here to be a ski bum. And... I really wasn't, I hadn't run for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I was always in kind of good shape. I hiked around and stuff like that, but I just found the love of being out in the mountains, you know, and, and traveling through the mountains faster than just a small, you know, slower walk just seemed appealing to me. And then I started running races and, you know, it was just a hill climb, a, you know, a five mile hill climb or something like that. But I became more and more intrigued over just going further. And when you go further, you sort of, you don't really, your heart rate doesn't go as high. You go a little bit slower. So it's almost it's almost more enjoyable. So as I sort of progressed, you know, the, the ultra marathon became into existence in 96, but just before that I was running some trail marathons, you know, and then a random friend comes up to me and says, Hey, you should run the Wasatch 100. And I was just like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> but, but, you know, I kind of, I, I did it and believe me, I suffered. I, I did really well for about 50 miles. And then I, I was a suffer fest all the way to the end, but I had no desire to, to quit. You know, I think that's where it all started. It was like, I just have, I'm just wired where, I want to kind of just keep going and going and raising the bar. And then after winning so many hundred milers, you know, it's kind of like people would ask me, well, what's next, you know? And I really didn't have an answer for that until I started thinking about the Appalachian Trail in 2008. And that was the first time I went after it. And, 
you know, I didn't really know what I was doing to go 45 days or 47 days in the woods like that. It was, it's really not all about the runners, it's about the crew and things like that too. So I put myself out there and tried something different and now I'm obsessed. <laughs> I don't know right, why I'm right. obsessed with it, but it's crazy to think like, even now I sit here, you know, almost six weeks after finishing the AT and breaking the record. Um, you know, people are asking me what's next and I'm like, man, I got this weird feeling went back in my head. Well, maybe I should go northbound <laughs> another time. <laughs> it's, it's weird because yeah. the 46 days is, it's 46 days of misery. You know, I mean, don't kid yourself. It's, you wake up every morning at 4.30, you try to get going by 5. And the thing is, when that day's over, you're not done. You know, you have to go to bed and get up and do it again. And, uh, but, you know, my brain is just wired to raise that bar for myself. It really wasn't to show everybody else that I'm better than anyone else. It's just, I did it for me. And, you know, now I feel really good about it and I don't know what I, what else I can do next other than go back to the AT or something longer, but I don't know. It's like I said, it's misery out there and it's tough when you're out there, but when you're done, you can talk about it. That's kind of why I think a lot of people even run their ultra marathons. It's about the stories that you tell, you know, while you were out there on the trail or the road, wherever you run. So it's just a fun journey. Um, when it's over. <laughs> I just want to circle back to that origin story a little bit because I've spoken with lots of people who've done ultras and they're, there's, there's one consistent thread and the consistent thread is when they first hear about an ultra hundred miles, 75 miles, whatever it may be, that first response that all of us have, why would I want to do that? The sort of incredulity, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Most people pivot left and don't do it. There are a handful of people that hear, why would I want to do that? And then they reflect on it and they go and do it. And like you say, there's that sort of wiring neurologic pathway where there is a group of people that say, well, why would I want to do that? And then they proceed to do it. What happens when you get that question and you, instead of saying, why would I want to do that? And then you move on to other business that you say, well, why would I want to do it? And let me go and give it a try. Yeah. I think people, you know, it's, it's about success. It's about success for themselves. I, you know, it's funny when, when someone finishes that hundred mile or 50 mile or maybe 50 K you might be sitting there at the, on the massage table at the end, which is what I was doing on my, on my first hundred. <laughs> right. I was laying there. I'm like, I'm never doing this again. Why did I do that? You know, but two or three days later go by that some of that major soreness sort of subsides and you're like, where do I sign up again? It's, it's that endorphin rush of the feeling of finishing and being successful for yourself because you know that you, you incurred like all this misery while you were out there. You, you know, the demons are between your ears saying you should just quit and go home. If you stop in Brighton, which is mile 75 at the Wasatch 100, I can just drive home in 20 minutes and go to sleep. <laughs> but, but the success stories of like just people finishing is what it's really all about. It's not always about the speed. I think watching anybody finish a race like this or just a long run or something is satisfying for them and myself, you know, and I think that's why we do it is you just got to do it one time and you'll understand you finish a hundred mile and the 50 miler seems like child's play, you know, I mean, it's going to hurt for sure while you're doing it, but the end stories are, I think while we do it. And, you know, for me, it was just like, I didn't know what I was getting into. I was carrying a pack with too much stuff. I was, wasn't eating right. I didn't even know what salt was used for when I was on, on the age station tables and, you know, but you learn and all of a sudden you get better at the stuff and everybody likes to get better at what they do, whether it's work or play or whatever you do, it's, it's always better to get better, you know? So I think this ultra marathons, you can always get a little bit faster or have a little bit better experience out there. I think that's why people really like to do it. You mentioned something else, and this is the other part of, of ultras that I, I, I love to dive into. And you, you call it the demons between the ears. I refer to it just as the voice. Uh, 
You know, there's so, and this is the part that I think we can really extrapolate out. And, you know, when I'm actually talking with patients, I talk to them about this concept that there are going to be times where the voice is going to talk to you and it's going to say, you don't need to be out here. You don't need to fight this hard. You don't need to push. This hurts. This sucks. You can just stop. Yeah. Why would I want to do this? You That's know right. I mean? But, but the Sometimes. other demon in the back of your, the other demon in the back of your head is saying, you can do it succeed. You know, then the other guy says, well, you can go home and sit on the couch and watch TV. It's uh, it's like, who's going to win that, that, that battle. Um, it is, it's really between your ears like golfers, you know, golfers, professional golfers will say it too. They're all so good, but then, you know, it's between their ears, whether or not they can hit that right shot or not. It's kind of the same thing with running. It's just, uh, you just have to like fight off that demon. If you can fight the demon off, then you're successful, whether it's work or whatever you're doing, you know, the demon, there's always demons out there that will say, you know, don't do this. Why are you doing this? It's much easier to just go home and sit around. But I mean, with, when you're successful with something, it's just, it just feels good. You know, um, people just love to love to be successful. There's no doubt about that. I want to dig a little bit into that though. So, so give us a vignette you're on the trail. It's, it's raining, it's hot, whatever it may be. And you're hearing the voice and it's saying to you, Carl, you're on day 23, buddy. You're, you're nowhere close to the finish. Let's go home. What tools do you use to make to, so that the other voice that says, no, no, you're okay. Let's keep plugging. Let's keep grinding. What tools do you actually apply in that moment so that you can get the, the demon voice to, to shut up basically? Yeah. Well, one thing I've always, always said to myself when I have bad, we call them bad patches a lot of times, whether it's day 23 of the AT or, you know, mile 70 of a hundred, that it doesn't always get worse. And you know, you can feel really horrible. You can be throwing up on the trail. You can do, you know, it, all these bad things can happen, but it doesn't always get worse. And a lot of times for me now, especially later in my career, I've said to myself, I kind of laugh at the facts when I have a bad patch. I'm like, ah, this is the demon in my head saying, ah, you should go home. But when, again, when you beat the demon, you, you feel exponentially better, you know, like so much better than if you go home. If you go home and, and you bail out or something, you, you have this down period afterwards and you're, you feel like you're so unsuccessful. One of the things that I've, I've seen in a lot of races, um, you know, obviously not a whole AT, but in races where, you know, participant A drops out at mile 70 because, well, they weren't feeling so good, but then they come back to the finish line and they're, they're walking around, they feel great, everything's groovy. It's like, why didn't they want to suffer? That was the demon that won that time, you know? And they feel bad about their, their race. And then they come back and you just, you just say to them, Hey, with failure comes greater success. Right. So then they come back the next time and they kill it. It's the, the, the demons between your head are just, I just kind of laugh at the fact right now. I mean, at the beginning of my career, it was easy to just say, go home and, and bail out. I mean, especially on the AT, like you said, 23 days into it. And this time when I was on the AT 19 days into it, it was when I started to have real some nasty tendonitis in my shin and it would have been easy to go home, but I didn't want to fail. You know, I was, I said to myself, I'm going to give it everything I have to be successful here. Um, even if I don't, if I don't make it, at least I gave it all that I had. So for me, it was just about giving it all, you know, I mean, I didn't want to go home a third time trying at the AT with my tail between my legs. <laughs> right. Um, that's the thing is like, you, you know, this time there was really no pressure on me. I mean, there was a little pressure, you know, because I'm a sponsored athlete and I get paid to do what I do. And if I fail, then especially at age 48, what happens next? You know, um, there was a little pressure in the back of my head to, to be successful here. So that, that drove me forward a little bit. Um, but you know, in the past I could go home and start over and just do another race and it wouldn't have mattered. But I think when you're successful, 
everything feels good and and you know now I can just kind of sit back and enjoy the enjoy all the interviews and things that I've done now right. and just <clears throat> now you back. can enjoy the fruits of your labors a little bit more exactly the fruits of my labor now that's exactly right I can just say okay I, I made it you know I mean I've been trying for this thing for a while too so it isn't like just one race that I won this was this has been in the works you know since I thought about it in 2007 when I brought it up to one of my sponsors and said, can we do this? Can we go for it? Yeah. I never thought they'd go. I never thought they'd go for it. And at yeah. all, no way. Cause it's expensive. You know, it's not, you can't just say, Oh, I want to do the 18 next year and take a hundred bucks and head out. It doesn't work that way. Um, it's expensive. And for me at that time, especially at that time, uh, there's no way I would have been able to afford it myself. So it was, it was cool that, um, backcountry.com was the company that took care of me on that first adventure. And, uh, it's, and I learned a lot and I learned a lot about myself. Um, I got injured 14 days into it, but I wanted to finish. You know, I was still, I was beyond, beyond, beyond breaking the record after I had to sit for four days, but I still wanted to finish. And that really drove me to the desire to keep chasing that AT record. And, you know, and now again, like you said, I can just enjoy the fruits of my labor. I can sit back and say, finally, I've done this, but it's, but again, like what's next, you know, I don't know if there is a next, um, Go out and play some more golf, probably at this yeah, point. Right. So as you're, you're, you have those moments on the trail where you know we talked about the the demon voice will talk to you, and you think about, do I want to quit? Do I want to stop? There must also be moments aside from when you finished and and found out that and realized that you'd broken the record. There must have been other moments where you almost had like a euphoria, whether it was because of fatigue or something great that you did while on the trail. What were those moments like? Where as you're cruising along, you know, again, day twenty four, day twenty eight. Were there moments of, of of happiness or euphoria or achievement along the way? Well, yeah. I mean, the AT is a special place for me. I think it's it's weird because all it really is is this walk in the green tunnel, right? I mean, like, what? why is that special? I can go walk in the woods here in Utah. I can go walk in the woods anywhere. But the AT, for me anyway, has a special aura of, like, this is what I do. This is what I like, you know? I mean, it's you have a weird feeling on that trail. Like, it's, it feels like everybody knows everyone else. You know, you know, a lot of two hikers on the AT, we all have our trail names and we all sort of like talk to each other as we pass each other and, or, you know, vice versa, whatever. It just has this special, uh, there's a special feeling. Like, this is what I do. You know, my dad, my dad was at crewing in 2008. He was also crewing. And he said one thing to me on the trail one day, I was having a really bad, I went 60 miles one day and the following day I was, I was wasted. I just like, I was over it. I didn't want to go any further. I had a bad patch for a whole day. But we're walking along. He said, I'll go nine miles with you. And he did. And he's like, this is what you do. You know, this is who you are. And when I'm out there just saying, this is who I am. So what if I feel lousy for a while? You know, I mean, like I said, it doesn't always get worse. You can feel better tomorrow. You can do better the next day. It's just a feeling of being out there. I mean, you have no choice when you're in the woods. You've got to keep moving forward, at least till you get to the van. <laughs> you know, right, right. you can't just like lay down on the trail overnight and get eaten by the bears, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> they're out there. But, uh, you know. That's one thing about the trail too, is that, you know, you can't just stop and, and go home and ride your bike home. You have to like go to that point B. And and when you have bad patches out there, what's important is to like, whether you're getting crewed at a van or an aid station or something like that, um, once you get away from that van again, even a quarter mile heading in the right direction, then you've got to go to the next spot. So it's really, you kind of take it piece by piece as you go along. And then eventually someday, um, it comes to an end and it certainly felt endless, you know, as I'm 20 days into it, man, I still have 25 days to go. But again, having done it a few times, I sort of knew what that felt like. It was better for me this time, of course, but uh, it's, there's a weird aura out there on the AT. It's just a special place. 
you can be near houses, you know, in more residential areas like in Jersey or New York, there's, you know, it's more population and you're in the woods and you don't know that you're a hundred yards from some guy's backyard. That's amazing. And, and that's, what's kind of cool too. You know, it's like all of a sudden you pop out on a road and then you cross the road and you're back in the woods. You just don't even really know that you're close to civilization. And then sometimes you're way out there too, but that's, that's what makes it kind of cool. It's like 2,200 miles of woods. I mean, it's, it's pretty neat. It's, it's There's a, nothing it's a else cool like place. that out there. Let's no, get a little no, bit granular, isn't. though. What is what does the day look like? What does day twenty nine look like? You said you would wake up at about four thirty. You're on the trail at five. What's the nutrition like over the course of the day? How much of the day are you alone? What does that one day grind look like? Yeah. So we my my goal every morning in the AT was to get out of the van and walking by five a.m. So you're right. I woke up about four thirty, four twenty ish, or something like that. My crew, Eric, who was also sleeping in the van, we had the van slept two people, and he would fire up the coffee with a little jet boil. You know, he'd make that five minutes or something like that. Then he'd wake me up because I was dead sleep every time when I, when I was, you know, when I was sleeping, I was out and he'd wake me up. I'd slam a little bit of that coffee, do some business in the morning and I'd eat it like a small breakfast. It would it generally was yogurt, uh, a couple yogurts uh, just to get myself moving. And then, you know, I, my pack was basically ready the night before with enough food to get me from to the next aid point. And that could be anywhere from seven miles to 18 or 20 miles. Um, we'd go over that the night before, like all my sections for the following day. And then I would take off at five with a little bit of food in my pouch and, uh, you know, and some water, of course, and go to the next station. And as the day progressed, every stop, it would just be refill my bottles, drink some Altergen, which is a recovery drink, um, eat a little food, eat as much food as I could at the van, which would be amazed how fast I can eat food. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I would slam imagine. it down quickly, you know, yeah. uh, but that's the thing is consume a bunch of calories there and take as little food on trail as, as you can. So you're basically limiting your weight. And then, you know, that would go five times each just throughout the day, kind of the same routine. I would eat whatever my crew would give me. They would, I, I instructed them to say, what do you want to eat? What would you, what do you, what would you like at the next stop? And I said, I just want food. You know, I mean, you guys come up with it. And it got hard for them after, especially after day, day 29. Well, God, we fed them this and that. What can we give them that's different? You know, because you had to break it up and make it different all the time for, for me to be happy. You can't eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all day long for right. 45 days, you know. Yeah. You can only so eat like, so they many it up all the time. Yeah, I mean, I eat yogurt every morning, which is pretty amazing. But that was easy <laughs> to consume. You know, yeah. I just sucked that down in like a minute. But, but, you know, when the day would come to an end, finally, I mean, I knew about what time I would get to my finish points. Um, it's amazing how you do the math in your head all day long, looking at your watch. And then, you know, say you get there at 8 PM. What I would do is instantly, my dad was cooling pretty much the whole time. So he would set up my, my, uh, cleaning station. We'll call it that. Um, I would clean my feet and take care of my feet, which did fantastic the whole time. We'd clean that up, clean the rest of my body up as best that I could. And we didn't take many showers out there. We just kind of cleaned ourselves up. I would ice my shins every night um, religiously because that's just tendonitis in the shins is like the most common thing that can happen. So we try to keep inflammation down as much as possible. And then while I was icing my shins, which was about 15 minutes, Eric would have dinner already prepared. I would sit there and eat my dinner while I'm icing my shins and I'd go right to bed. So I was in bed about 30, roughly about 30 minutes after stopping every night. And, and I fell asleep fast. Um, a lot of times when you run these long races, you're kind of wired and you can't, you can't go to sleep, you know? I was out cold every night after like 30 minutes and the routine went on and every day, you know, I mean, I never thought about if I'm at day 29, for instance, and I had 16 more days to go, I never really thought about, 
oh, I've got 16 days to go. I would just think about what's my first leg tomorrow. Because if you look at the long, big picture, oh, man, I've got 900 miles left, it, it feels daunting. But if you just kind of break it up into piece by piece every day and every day into pieces, then it just doesn't seem, I mean, it's, it's hard all the time. It doesn't seem as hard because your sections are eight miles and seven miles and 14 miles. And it just it breaks it down the whole day. And for me, that's basically how I did it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not really rocket science. Um, we didn't have a big crew. It was just Eric and my dad most of the time. You know, Scott Church jumped on, another friend jumped on once in a while. My wife was also there for a little bit of it, but we kept it very stealth and minimal. While I was on the trail, I mean, I was on the trail 98% of the time I was by myself with my music in my in my ears. Um, I'm not really the kind of guy that likes to, to bring along a big group of people, you know, to follow me and ask questions and, and take my mind off the, the real focus, which was getting to Springham Mountain faster than anyone. I like to be out there alone, and I think that's what I enjoy the most is the solitude. Even though I have music in my ears, it's still solitude to me of being out there by myself and dealing with my issues by myself. There are many times that I would be suffering. Like, I'm suffering going up a hill, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to sit on a rock, um, <laughs> which I did plenty, I did plenty of times, you know. And, I, and I'd, I'd rather not see people see me in that state. I basically am the kind of guy that I don't need the cheering section. I just... I can cheer myself on in my own little way and talk myself out of the demons between my ears. And that's, I guess that's why it made me successful in racing too, is that sometimes it isn't your day and nobody wins them all. I mean, that's just the truth. So you just kind of accept what, what comes at you and deal with the issues. I mean, ultra running is dealing with issues. That's kind of what it is. If you can manage the issues better than anyone else, you're probably going to be more successful than others. There must be times where when you're in one of those long stretches, even with the music, but because of that solitude, you must end up doing some pretty significant sort of mental deep dives and, you know, really dissecting where you are as a person, where you are in life. I mean, it could, I can imagine it could get pretty dark and challenging in the, in the deep recesses of your mind. Many people ask me, did you get bored out there? Which is kind of the same question. Like, you know, I guess I got bored when I, I was switching this, the music that I was listening to, listening to. Yeah. It's, you do, you think about, you think about your life. You think about a lot of so many different things out there. You think about the squirrel that one just went up the tree or you think about the <laughs> right. last corner or when you just stubbed your toe, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or the pretzel that you just ate. It's really weird. You just think about anything that just kind of comes to your mind. Like when you're driving to work, what do you think about? You might think about work. You might not. You might think about the guy driving faster than you or whatever. It's, you just have to, you know, I kept telling myself, you know, this is, this is, I was focused out there this time way more than the other two attempts that I made. I just like, this is, you know, get to the next aid station. And a lot of times, you know, I'd look at my watch. If I had say six miles to the next stop, I'd look at my watch and I'd break that down to mile at a time, you know? Um, all right. I got through five, just get to four. I got to three to go and get to two to go. You know, I really did a lot of that breaking down of each section by the mile. And that just kind of got me there. You know, what seemed fast, um, mentally, I've always, also said too is that when you're out there on the trail you know or, or driving across the country which is another mind-boggling thing to do <laughs> sitting behind the wheel for so long you think you're never going to get there i said to my buddy eric i said just blink and guess what that evening all of a sudden you just drove 800 miles and you're halfway there you know it's kind of like that on the at just blink and it'll be over it, it doesn't feel like it's gonna be over right away when you're in the moment but when all of a sudden the moment's over and now i'm six weeks after doing it you know yeah. someone will talk to me next spring and like Wow, I'm coming up on almost a year of being done the AT, you know, it's like, wow, this time goes fast. Time goes by really fast. You know, I, I live my life to live, not to, not to really work. You know, I, I mean, I certainly do work, but 
I'm going to go out and have fun more than more than think about what you know what my salary is or anything like that. I could care less what that is as long as I survive. Yeah. But you know, it's really about for me anyway. It's really about enjoying the moment of when I'm in it and trying to stay positive all the time. And yeah, that doesn't happen all the time. No, nobody's positive 100 percent of the time. But but um, talking yourself out of the negatives is really what makes people successful and positive. Yeah. What does that co- what does that pivot feel like when you go from 45 days of solitude? you know, no iPhone, no email, none of that sort of thing. The things that we are so accustomed to that divert our attention on a constant basis, switching back into that. What does that transition feel like? That must be pretty jarring. Well, yeah, the transition getting back to it, believe me, I, you know, after I finished on a Sunday morning early, we had a few days in Atlanta. I did a bunch of interviews, which of course I expected that. Then I came home back to my real world. And you're right, the cell phone was off, you know? I mean, pretty much off for two months, which was, oh my, it's a beautiful thing. What a and I'm saying with the that email. must have been. Holy cow. Oh my God. Not worrying about like what anyone else is doing or that you need to get back to someone or tell them something. That, believe me, is priceless. Because nowadays, who gets to do that? I think, you know, anyone who, I mean, there's people out there in Maine that probably get to do it up there in the wilderness, you know? But at the same time, my world is email. I coach people online, you know? So I'm, back at it. So when I came home, the hardest thing to do was to turn that computer on and say, okay, I I guess I have to get back to the real world and work. And I'll be honest, it took, it took me what I thought would take me about a week to week and a half to get kind of caught up and get things rolling again. Took me four weeks because I just didn't want to do it. You know, I'm, I don't want to check my email this morning. You know, I looked at the Facebook news is what I call it every morning for like 10 minutes. You know, I mean, like most people probably do. And, and I just, wanted to turn it off, but, but you have to, I mean, you have to get back to it. You know, at some point you have to make a living somehow. And, uh, it was very, very difficult. And I'd, I'd rather not have to use my phone. I'd rather have an old rotary phone and dial my number if I could do that and let the thing ring that way. But you just have to, just have to get back at it and get back to your real life. And it's yeah. sort of, I'm sort of back there. I don't even know if I'm completely back there now. I'd rather go tool around my backyard and, and, and work on some project or something. I'm kind of a project guy who never gets a hundred percent done, <laughs> but you know, I have a lot of people out there like that, but at the same time, uh, I'd rather be doing that than, than you know, check my email every day, but it's reality. You sort yeah. of have to do it. You know, it's, I, I, like I said, though, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not pounding the keys right now to work 10 hours a day so I can make more money. I'm just kind of like letting myself get back into the groove and it will, it'll come eventually. You know, running is coming back very slowly, too. I've run one day since the AT right wow. now, which is my legs are believe me. I went out two days ago. My legs are, were junk, you know? Yeah. I mean, I hiked up, I hiked up and I, I jogged down. I didn't really jog down. I almost walked down, but my legs are junk and I'm going out today again and I'm going to start that process very slowly as opposed to jumping right back in and, and it'll come, you know, it's just a matter of accepting the fact that it's going to take a while and, and it works the same way. It's just... It, it does kind of stink that with social media and everything out these days is that that's what the world is now. You ha- you can't avoid that. You just have to get back at it and deal with it. Yep, just like yep. those demons in your head that, that were telling you to stop on the trail. It's like my demons in my head are saying, well, you're going to have to keep working, Carl, <laughs> or or you'll be living in the van the rest of your life. So <laughs> That's right. Yeah, which I could do probably, but at the same time, uh, that's kind of how it is. You just have yeah. to slowly get back into it. When I crewed the bad water, the most common questions that mm-hmm. I got about the people that I met who were competing and running was uh, something I have to ask you about because I know people want to know. And it was all about skincare, and it was always about mm-hmm. chafing. 
everyone yeah. was fascinated with how do we prevent chafing and then if you start to chafe if your skin starts to get irritated what do you do because everyone just feels like that is the ultimate nightmare to have you know chafing on your thighs or chafing on your chest or something like that sure. the fascination with this was so profound i was really struck by it was it something yeah. you had to pay attention to or was it something that you're at this point you're just a callous leathery saddlebag of a runner and you don't have to worry about it yeah, well, my feet became a saddleback leathery kind of runner. My feet did really well. I and mean, I don't put any type of lube on my feet. I mean, I don't really believe that. I think if you do that, your feet slide around in your shoes a little more, and you create blisters. Hydration has something to do with that, too. But it's funny that you say that. I mean, like bad water, too, because it's so hot. I mean, if you start chafing, and that can ruin your day, you're not really injured, you know? It's, a, it's an issue. It's a condition that I was mentioning before. Put on some squirrel's nut butter, which is the kind of stuff, which is the lube stuff that I used. And then you just kind of have it available, you know, and you just keep using it. It's those kind of things take a little pre-planning. You've got to remember that, oh, this could happen or that could happen. As long as you prepare for it, especially at Badwater. I mean, Badwater is a place where your crew is with you the whole time, right? I, I think within 400 yards of you or something. Yeah. So on that situation, I mean, there's sort of like no excuse to not at least have that available. <laughs> Sometimes, well, you know, I mean, it's right there. It's one thing if you're at an aid station 20 miles away and you don't have anything, you didn't bring any with you, then you could be, you know, that could be a problem. But, but, um, when it's there, you know, use it. Don't, don't hesitate and wait too much longer to save time. You're better off taking care of the issues as they're coming on before, before it gets too late. And that's, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have many problems like that out there. I mean, I, I used the, the squirrels, nut butter stuff and, it worked great. You know, I mean, I wasn't having any major problems. Um, for it's weird for me because a lot of times, even when I run hundreds, I'll put lube in all the necessary areas that I need it. And I'll run the whole race on it without, without having problems. Yeah. But that's just me. I mean, everyone's built a certain way. Sometimes your thighs will rub more than others because you're just built it. It's kind of an interesting study though, of just the idea of saying, look, this this is something that I can anticipate is going to happen, so I'm going to be proactive about taking care of it as opposed to allowing something to happen to you and then be kind of feeling like you're caught unawares or that you're behind. It's not just about skincare when you're running an ultra. It's just that concept of looking ahead at, okay, what may affect me on this, whatever the adventure or or task that you have in front of you and how can I anticipate difficulties and how can I protect my skin for you know lack of a better word. Right. It's pre-planning, you know, I mean, pre-planning for, I mean, for me, I mean, on the AT, you know, you're in the woods all the time. So I honestly, I didn't even wear sunscreen out there, you know, bad water, entirely different ball game. Of course, I've been to Death Valley and I don't plan on ever going back, but on the AT, you're in the, you're in the shade all the time. So we really didn't need the sunscreen, but you have, when it comes to pre-planning, you know, I did recon efforts back to the East coast a number of times before I did this. I and mean, Red Bull allowed me to go and kind of do what I needed to do to make this happen. So I, I spent so much time and effort uh, pre-planning and working for the crew so everything could go right. And that's just something in any race or in life. And, and if you can pre-plan for something, you know, it doesn't take, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week out of your time, you should do that. I mean, if anyone else wants to go back to the AT and they want some some advice, I mean, I'm the first person that will give it to them, you know. I think it's just important to plan plan something out, any big adventure or endeavor that you're going to do, because, you know, going in it, going into the thing, uh, kind of, I don't know, I'll say blind is it's sort of, it's not really a uh, recipe for failure, but you're, you're limiting your percentage points of actually finishing, you know? So you really, pre-planning is a huge thing. It's just, you got to be ready for all of it. You know, it's, 
My, my fellow I UCLA mean? alumni are going to love this, but there's the famous John Wooden quote where he said, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, when it's John Wooden saying it and you accomplish what he's accomplishing, kind of the same thing you're saying it, you have to be ready and then you can accomplish, yeah. you know, running the Appalachian trail, you, you know, you put in all that hard work, you do all the planning, you spend the money and then you grind for 45 days, 22 hours, 38 minutes. And you cross that finish line. You've done it. A, a, yeah, a few words on what that feels like. It's kind of surreal. You know, when I, when I finished, when I finally got to the day, when I was about 40 days into it, 38 days, about that point, maybe a week out, I was like, I've got this as long as I, wow. you know, so my body even a week before you felt like you've got it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think, and that's, that's because, because I knew where I was at. I mean, for me on that trail, it was Jen Farr Davis had the record, um, southbound, you know, I mean, Scott Jurek had the record, but I couldn't really go on what he was doing because he was calling a death march the last week in Maine going the opposite direction. So it's, you can't really judge what he was doing, but I had Jen's itinerary in front of me where exactly where she slept every night and Scott only beating her by three day, three hours. I could kind of just go where she was and know where I was. So my body was feeling, you know, I have high points and low points and tired points and not, but I knew where I was and how my body felt. And I just felt, you know, seven days out, I just have to, you know, you're getting close, Carl, you're into the last week, you're in the single digits of days to finish here, you know, and just blink buddy and it'll be over. And so all of a sudden, boom, 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 we get through the Smoky mountains and I'm three days out and I'm like, you know, yeah, I just hold it together, man. And when I finally get to Springer you know, I was running about 85 miles that last day and it didn't feel like 80. I mean, it didn't really feel like 85. It just felt like I was running like every other day, whether I was at mile 80 or mile 40, it was kind of all the same. Your body just adapts to doing it so repetitively all the time. So when I finally was walking up to Springer, you know, my crew was like, well, do you want us to walk in front of you or behind you? I'm like, eh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'll just walk in the front, I guess. Yeah, you know? Don't ask and, me any questions. I'm tired. Yeah, I, I'll get there. It's a mile. <laughs> you know, it'll take me exactly 17 minutes. Um, so we walked up and finally when I hit that, finally when I saw the Extra, few, a few extra lights up there that Red Bull had up, set up for a little interview or something at the top. And and I finally hit there and I, you know, I tagged the rock and we, we recorded my time and I was like, oh, you know, game over. It's finally over. Um, but so then we did some stuff on the top and then we walked back down to the car, which was only a mile, you know, pretty easy. And we get down to the car and I just like, I sat down and I'm like, can I get a slice of pizza and I'll have a beer, you know? Oh, um, wow. I just wanted to, it was nice, you know, it was quiet and, you know, nobody wanted to drive to Atlanta right away because we were all fried from the night. So like we slept for a couple hours and then I woke up like 6 a.m. or something like that, or, you know, six or seven, just to sleeping a couple hours. And and my wife and I were sleeping in the van and I woke up and I sat there and I'm like, I don't have to go anywhere today. You know, I mean, it felt <laughs> yeah. great to not have to go walk again, but it felt weird at the same time because I was so used to that routine. And, you know, I sure I could have gone another day if I would have had to, but, um, it finally did feel good to to stop and say, man, I, you know, after nine years of trying to chase this record, I finally got it, you know, um, 10 hours, which 10 hours, it's breaking it by 10 hours is not very much really. It's, it's a lot, it seems like a lot, um, but it's really not that much. I mean, the record can be broken. It can be, it can be 44 days, I think. But the bottom line is, is I got it, you know, and I was so happy that I finally was successful. I could finally lay on the, once we got to Atlanta the next day, we got to the hotel or the next morning and, uh, or Sunday afternoon, whenever it was, um, I got to lay on the bed and just lay there, you know, 
And I'm like, that was, that was like the greatest feeling ever. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel the need to turn on the TV. I didn't want to, you know, I just kind of sat there and just laid there, had the, had a fan blowing on me. I'm like, this is, that's how I it, guess this is why I did it. It yeah. felt so good. You know, that's amazing. Um, it, it was amazing. I mean, it's just the, the, the successful feeling when you're successful, it's so, it just feels so good. The endorphin rush is so high. And then it's like, well, you know, so many people ask, well, what's next? I'm like, don't ask me now, <laughs> you know, maybe have breakfast, I guess. But, you know, um, it's, it's an amazing feeling when you're successful, whether it's a hundred mile, 50 miles, whatever, even or 2,200 miles, it felt really good for me to be done. And, you know, it's now it's like, now I can just sit back, like you said, and you know, I enjoy the fruits and yeah. chill out. The, a big part of the ultra running culture, though, does feel like it is that what's next piece. So how long, Always. how much time elapsed before you started to allow yourself to maybe think about another challenge? I won't do anything this long again next year. <laughs> I certainly don't plan on that. Um, but it's funny. I mean, I look at, you know, I fumble through the news and stuff like that now, and I look at pieces of what people are doing. And it takes, for, for your body to recover, at least from my experiences on doing these things, um, three and a half to four months. To, to, to what I say, I'm up to speed, which means I can go for my seven mile run. I hit the normal times that I do that. I, and I feel fine. So that'll take a while. And like I said yesterday, my legs are junk and they'll be junk today, but it'll come around. Um, but the, you have to kind of wait for your mind to also come around. If you, I didn't run for 37 days after the AT because I just didn't feel like going. I didn't feel like I needed to get back out there and hurry up and get, get fit again to race. I let my, let myself come back slowly. You know, I'll plan on, I plan on running races next year. I can certainly say that. Um, I've got other goals. I've got some other, you know, the streak of winning a hundred miles, 16 years in a row is, is on my radar. I mean, for sure. I mean, I'd like to keep that streak going, but where, where that's going to be, I don't know exactly, but I'll figure it out. I think I just have to let my, I have to kind of let that stuff for me anyway, come back naturally instead of trying to feel like I have pressure to do this, that, and the other. I mean, my sponsors don't, they don't, you know, Hoka doesn't give me any, has any pressure on me to do this, that, or the other, nor does Red Bull or any of my other sponsors. They're like, Carl, just, you relax for a while um, and you'll figure out what's next. And and that's, that's the beauty of, of where I'm at right now is I don't have to really think about what's next, but I know something will come. It's just, it has to kind of all of a sudden, the light has to turn on, you know, oh, I'll think I'll do this. I definitely have some, some unfinished business or some unfinished places I like to go see and, and run through. And those are, those are long, that's Colorado trail was on my radar. It's eight days though. It's like, that's probably more miserable than 45 because sort of, <laughs> but because, well, because <laughs> that can be debated probably. You, yeah, yeah. The thing, the thing about that is you, you have more sleep deprivation on that because it's eight days. If you're trying to break a record anyway, yeah. it's like you, you have to deal with the sleep deprivation on the HE. I got eight hours of sleep every night, most, most every night. So I was, I was rested every night. Okay. These other other things, these eight day records are are tough because you start off and you you only have a week, you know, so you really have to like go into that deep dark zone, like you were saying, and and deal with it. Those issues are probably tougher, like I said in the AT, but you know stuff like that. I mean, I'm 48 years old. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go win any big races anymore. I'm not gonna beat those young kids anymore. So I can just go out and enjoy. My goal is to basically enjoy what I have, you know, I mean, enjoy the running through the mountains. So what if I'm a little bit slower? I get, uh, you know, I'll say like a lot of the hikers stay in the AT. Well, Carl, you did it so fast. You didn't enjoy the trail. Like I get to enjoy it now because I'm slower, <laughs> but <laughs> right. it's, you know, it's, it's okay to think that way. It's fine. Um, it's just the way I did it. And, um, for me, that was enjoying it. You know, it's just, uh, it's, I will see what's next. Something's coming, but I don't, I don't really have a plan 
you know, it's, uh, it'll come to me. I think you've earned the right to take your time and think about what, make the right choice about what's going to be next. That's an extraordinary yeah. adventure. And I really appreciate you coming on and taking some time to kind of get in the weeds a little bit, get back on the trail and let us join you for a, for a short period of time, just to kind of see what that must've felt like. But what, what an achievement. Yeah. Thanks very much, Mark. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, it feels really good. Now I can go walk around the trail and not even wonder how fast I go. I don't bring my watch anymore either. You yeah. know, I just Fantastic. go wander around and this is really cool. See a moose, come back home, relax, take a nap. <laughs> um, <laughs> good feeling. That's fantastic. Well, thanks again so much and we'll look forward to seeing what the next adventure is. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.